everybody. Lovely to, lovely to have you with us this evening. You just heard Christine's story. Christine is actually a member of, uh, of this church, Neri Warren Baptist, and she and her husband, Bruce, have come for many, many years. She was um, here this morning um, getting out uh, twice in one day. is a real challenge, so she's not with us tonight, but her story um, has been with us. And um, it's crazy to think that you could give birth to a very healthy baby. And um, every parent's dream is to give birth to a very healthy baby. And he was healthy and perfect and well. And 13 days later, he had this brain hemorrhage amongst other things, which led to major complications. And uh, he's 26 years old now. And uh, he's lived a life of very, very significant disability. And um, as Christine said, they didn't think he's, he'd live this long. But on top of that, you know, the, the denial and the, the, the pain and the confusion and the, my goodness, what's his future going to look like and what's our future going to look like and is he ever going to get married and what about when we get too old and we can't look after him anymore and that array of question and confusion sat with them so significantly and she shared with us that for an entire month she, um, she just hid low and, and kept her head down and didn't share that with anyone. And, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that, you know, life sort of throws all sorts of things at us, doesn't it? And um, sometimes our situations are our situations and we can try and run away, but we can't. We can cry and sob, but that doesn't change anything. We can find the best of friends and the best of counsellors, but, you know, that doesn't change our situation. Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes you and I find ourselves in situations where... There's nothing that we can do. And that was their situation. When you've got a child with a significant disability, there is nothing that they could do. And that was just the way they had to learn how to do life. As you walked in this evening, you would have received one of these tiles. If you don't have one, can you just slip your hand up? Because our Hello team will come and put one in your hand and we don't want anybody to miss out. So arms high up in the air if you did not receive one and the Hello team will just come and slip one in your hand. The reason we gave you this in line with our Mosaic Artist series, we are going to give you the opportunity during this um, message tonight to have a think about a situation that you might be going through in your world where you sort of throw your hands up in the air or you shake your head or you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, a situation that leaves you thinking, there is nothing that I can do. A situation that you want to put before God for his breakthrough and his intervention. There are uh, permanent markers at the end of the aisles. So can I encourage you, your neighbours won't mind, grab a texter as I'm speaking. It's okay, I'm totally cool with the disruption. Grab a texter and write down what it is for you, big or small, it doesn't matter. For some of you, it'll be humongous. For others, it'll just be an everyday thing. Whatever it is, can you take a moment to write that down on your tile as I speak, please? I wonder what it is for you. I wonder what it is that you will write down on your tile. I wonder what it is that creates you to throw your arms up in the air and to feel like you're a little bit stuck and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to move forward. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe for you, you find yourself in a challenging relationship, whether that's with a spouse, a partner, a child, a, a parent, a, a colleague, a friend, a neighbour, whoever that person might be. And you find yourself in this difficult place and you think, you know, you muster up all these awesome conversations and all this dialogue to have 
with that person and you brave it and you go in very prayerfully into those conversations expecting a good outcome and you walk away thinking, my gosh, it's like beating your head against a wall. And you stand back and you think, I just feel like there's nothing I can do. You know that feeling? Maybe for some of you, it's a work situation. Maybe you, you're in a job or you're looking for a job, but if you're in a job, perhaps you sort of like, you know, do all the right things. You play above the rules. You, you know, you're integrous. I mean, for crying out loud, maybe you even pr- pray for your colleagues. And you know, you're, you're sort of su- such a, a positive influence within your workplace. You, you think that God's sort of, you know, really pleased with what he sees when he looks down on you in your workplace. And yet you look around and others who are not quite like that Others who don't play by the rules. Others who do what they please and honesty isn't necessarily a priority to them. But somehow they keep landing the breaks and you don't. And they keep getting the promotions and the favour and the networks and you don't. And you think to yourself, my goodness, it's it's like just fighting the wind. There's nothing I can do about this. Maybe for others of you, it's a situation where you often find yourself you know, with like extreme worry or stress and, you know, your responses or anger even, your responses to certain situations and not what you want those responses to be. And you see a counsellor. You've got good friends in your world. You know, you you try and really unpack what it is that's causing that concern or that inattention, what's like, you know, creating this. You're applying strategies. You're praying through it. You're doing all the right things. But then again, it creeps up on you and that worry just invades you. That stress just invades you. That anger just keeps coming out of you. And and you think to yourself, I can't keep doing life like this. Like something has got to shift. But I feel like there's nothing I can do about this. Maybe it's just simple day-to-day things. Maybe simple things where you're watching someone that you love go through something that's hurting them and causing them some pain. And you just watch on and your hands are tied and you think, oh, it's really ripping me apart. I really feel for them there's nothing I can do. And if that's ever been your experience, and I dare say that is collectively our mutual experience at some point in our life, like I said, with big things or everyday things, we're not alone. (laughs) Because Mordecai, one of the characters in the book of Esther, and for those of you who were here last week, we're unpacking the book of Esther under this series, The Mosaic Artist. Last week, we had a look at three different characters, Esther, Mordecai and Haman and um, we we realized that Haman sorry Mordecai was Esther's cousin and he adopted Esther if you like because she was an orphan and he took her on and he raised her we also discovered that Esther or we uh, uh, unpacked the process by which she became queen we also met a bad guy by the name of Haman he was a um We'd call him an evil character, I guess, in the book of Esther. So we met Haman and we discovered that he had this terrible, terrible plan to assassinate Mordecai, who was a Jewish man, and the entire Jewish nation. And I just want to, uh, for the purpose of revision, just um, uncover that in Esther chapter 3. We read this last week, but to pick up where we left off and shoot us through into today, it says this. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, He was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout all the kingdom of Xeres. So what happened is Mordecai was a Jewish man. 
Haman was a royal official within the palace and he was, um, a, he was a Persian. And so Mordecai decided it was customary for people to bow down to Haman, but he decided he wasn't going to because he wasn't going to bow down to any other God but the one true God. And this got him into enormous trouble, as that verse tells us. We also found out that this guy, Haman, the evil guy, was given the king's signet ring. So he walked around with a ring that basically entitled him to make any decisions he wanted to with a ring on his finger, and those decisions would become decree and law and legislation, if you like. So this guy was incredibly influential. He had the same authority as the king, and he could pretty much do what he wanted. Yeah. So we're talking about a, a, a pretty... Um, authoritative personality here with all the rights that went with it. In case that wasn't enough for our Haman, who had a really big ego problem as well, who didn't really know how to quite manage his revengeful side, just in case all of that authority was not suffice for him, we're going to read in a moment from the book of Esther chapter 5, and he goes home one day and he has this sook with his wife and his mates, and he has this sook and he's complaining about Mordecai and he's going on and on and on and, you know, and, you know, painting this horrible picture of Mordecai. And his wife and his buddies must have just gone, dude, would you shut up already? Like, you know, on and on. You know what? They're thinking, you've given us such a headache. We've got a grand idea. They're also probably evil. We can conclude that from what's coming, right? But in Esther chapter 5, it says his wife, Haman's wife, Zerich, and all his friends said to him, dude, we've got a fabulous idea for you. Why don't you have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it? Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had a pole set up. So not only was he going to annihilate the Jews, as we read last week, but he now had an even better idea, one up on last time's idea, that he was going to impale Mordecai. Now, to impale someone was a custom of the time, and it's basically piercing the body either that way or that way, and then popping the body up on a massive long pole, and it was just a torturous way of dying, and it was a very humiliating way of dying, and that was his plan. So fair to say we can conclude that Mordecai was a goner, right? <laughs> this guy had absolutely no hope. But let's also be reminded that he was the man who did a number of good things. He was the good guy who took on Esther and raised her instead of her parents. He was also the guy who stood up for his faith and decided that he wasn't going to bow down to Haman. And he was also the guy who saved the king from being assassinated sometime prior. How do I know that? Let's read from Esther chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. And it says this. So the king ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded in the book that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerus. So what does that all mean? Let me put it into context and explain to you, firstly, who Bigthana and Teresh are. So Bigthana and Teresh, uh, Teresh, um, they came up with some creative names back in the Old Testament, didn't they? Bigthana and Teresh. 
These were two guys who guarded the palace doors. And one day, as Mordecai was hovering around the palace, he overheard a conversation. And the conversation went along the lines of these two guys having a plan and chatting with one another about assassinating the king. And so Mordecai was like, oh my goodness, got to do something with this information. So he had an in through Queen Esther and he got word to her, letting her know that the king's life was under threat. So what actually happened when the king found out that these two guys were plotting his assassination? He impaled them. (laughs) He killed them. And so they were basically done with. And then have a guess who got their job. Mordecai had dobbed them in. He'd saved the king's life. These two guys were killed. And then Haman, the evil guy, got the job instead of the two men who were taken away from their job. So what was Mordecai's reward for being a really good guy? Nothing. (laughs) Pretty much nothing. So he was the one that did all of this stuff and he was the one that basically ended up suffering the consequences of some evil man sneaking around the system and getting ahead and getting the break, but he didn't. Correct. Correct. And that was his story. And the Bible doesn't tell us very specifically what he did or what his reaction was, but it represents him as a very upright, composed man of wisdom. But I would dare say that at that point, he probably (laughs) threw his arms up in the air and went, oh my goodness, there is nothing I can do about this. Are you kidding me? Now that's my own interpretation. But I dare say that anyone with sound mind would probably be standing back going, what? just happened. (laughs) It reminds me of a situation that we um, experienced a number of years ago where um, um, Peter, my husband, was in a ministry role and um, we significantly over several, several, several months um, felt God actually tell us that um, it was time for something different and it was a new season, but that we have to step out in faith in order to step into that new season. And so um, Peter obediently Um, And I say it in a sentence, but it was excruciatingly hard. Obediently stepped down from this role into a place of the unknown. Stepped down from this role into a season of don't really know what's ahead. Don't really know what will unfold next. But trusting God because he's the God who rewards obedience, right? So if he said step down and we step down, then we would fairly conclude that he was then going to reward that obedience. And so he did that, and um, it it was a really, really tough time. It was the biggest faith risk we've probably ever taken, and it was day by day, and he was in between jobs for a while. I had a girlfriend whose husband was also in a similar situation. He was in between jobs as well, but there was a significant difference between my husband and her husband, because my husband was in between jobs because he had stepped down from a role in obedience to God and done the integrous thing. Her husband was in between jobs because he'd been fired from the organisation where he worked for unethical conduct. But yet we were all praying that God would open up a door um, for a new job. And so um, the days ticked on and your faith rises, and then you get disappointed, and that happens again and again, until one day I got a phone call 
So I was driving along one day um, and I got a phone call and it was my girlfriend. And, um, and she says, hey, Suze, she had a bit of a chirp in her, in her tone. And she says, hey, Suze, I've got something really exciting to tell you. And I'm like, yeah. And, um, and she says, guess what? My husband just got offered a job. And I was like, wow, doing what? And she went on to tell me and I was like, this was not like a job. This was his dream job. Like his dream job. In fact, he hadn't even applied for it. He was headhunted. And so I would really love to tell you that um, I'm an incredibly, you know, beautiful-hearted Christian and I'm so holy inside and out. And I would love to tell you that I was excited for them. But I totally wasn't. I felt like in that moment that she told me that, that my heart fell from my heart where it belongs, from my chest into my shoes. I felt like the blood dry and run out of my entire body. And what I'm about to tell you that I did, I can't believe I'm about to tell you because you'll probably never see me in the same light again, but I will go on and tell you. I decided to hang up on her and pretend like I was in a no coverage spot because I couldn't bear to have the rest of that conversation because my mouth was dry, I was gutted. I was like, are you kidding me? I was having like Jesus meltdown. I was having doctrinal faith meltdown. I was like just, I was, I was not happy for them one bit and I was shattered for us because I tell you what, injustice and when it looks like God doesn't reward obedience, that is a gut-wrenching feeling. Injustice is an awful, awful feeling. Some of you will sort of like walk past me later and just go, we don't know her. <laughs> but injustice is an awful, awful experience. And so where was God in our situation? And where was God in Mordecai's situation of injustice? Can you pick up with me? Again, we're um, looking at the next piece of scripture and it says this. Because what I didn't tell you earlier is that there was a line there that I kept out before, but that changes the plot significantly, and it's this. It says, that night, the king could not sleep. That night, the king could not sleep. And then it goes on to tell us what we've just read. So the king ordered the book of Chronicles, um, the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him, and it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired the assassination. Let me just explain what that actually all means. One night, the king couldn't sleep. One night, God gave the king insomnia. <laughs> One night, God put a bee in the king's bonnet that he was up and he couldn't sleep and for the life of him, I don't know what he was doing, tossing, I don't know, went to the kitchen for a drink, midnight snack, I don't know. But what we do know is that God kept him up and he could not fall asleep. So he goes, oh, what shall I do now that I can't sleep? And he comes up with this grand idea and this beanie's bonnet that goes, read the book of Chronicles, get it read to you. <laughs> Let's read up on a little bit of history. And so, his boy's reading the book of Chronicles and he then discovers that Mordecai was the guy who saved his life back then. He has this reminder that Mordecai is the guy who saved his life from that assassination back then. Are you with me? So suddenly we go from Mordecai not being on the king's radar at all 
to suddenly he's the king's top priority. <laughs> because God put a bee in his bonnet and God gave him insomnia and wouldn't let him sleep. I had a giggle about this because when I was preparing this, I remembered um, recently I, I normally wear this um, cute little bangle that's very sentimental and I've worn it for years and it's got a, a little love heart locket thingy on the end of it. And um, just a little while ago, I was walking, I heard this ting on the floor and so I looked down, it's my love heart that's fallen off my bangle and so I pick it up and I'm like, far out, I could have lost that completely. And so I pick it up and I put it somewhere safe. Anyway, I get through my day and then I'm lying in bed at night, really, really late. I'm like warm and cosy and ready to go to sleep. And then I get the thought, my locket, where's my locket? <laughs> and so it's like, where's my locket? Where's my locket? And I couldn't remember the safe place where I put my locket. But of course, I needed to go downstairs and check where my locket was. So I say to Peter, I'm going to, my, my locket, like I've got to go downstairs. And he goes, don't worry about it. Just sort it out in the morning. No way. Like I could not fall asleep because I was so wired that I had to go and find my, my wallet, my, my locket. And this is what the king experienced. He's like, I can't go to bed until this book is written, read to me. And when he reads it, he discovers that it was Mordecai that saved his life. And so again, we pick up the story and the king asks his boys, Esther chapter six, three to four. And he says, hey boys, so if Mordecai was the one that like saved my life, what honor and recognition has he received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And the king said, who's in the court right now? As in in the courtyard. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Don't you love God's timing? Don't you absolutely love God's timing? Like the king's up and he goes, hey, who's in the courts right now? Who, who, who's out there? Let, let's just, you know, like I, I need to chat through something with someone. I need a little brainstorming session. Who's out there? And the scripture tells us Haman had just entered the outer court. Because you see, God is so precise and so specific and so down to the second that he never misses it. And so Haman has just stepped into the outer court and his attendants say, Haman's standing in the court. And the king says, bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asks him, Haman, you're a creative man. You've come up with some really creative ideas in the past. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, this guy is a guy with a big ego and the universe revolves around him. And so he's like, bingo, this is my lucky day. <laughs> Obviously, he's talking about me, but he wants to keep it as a lovely surprise. So he's not sort of going, hey, I'm talking about you, you know, it's like the surprise birthday that, you know, you plan for yourself type thing. And he's like, what should we do for this guy? And Haman's like, wow, I'm going to get really creative here. And so Haman probably goes like this and he, you know, acts all humble about it and goes, oh, let me think, you know, what would be a lovely thing to do for someone? And in Esther 6, 10, um, 6 to 10, we read, Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me, of course? Because you see, egotism and egocentric living just keeps us so insular. It's like there's no one on earth except for us. And this was Haman. So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, I've got a grand plan. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, of course. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most notable princes. Let that robe, let, let them robe the man 
the king delights to honour, <laughs> and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what he's done for the man the king delights to honour. He must have been oozing on the inside, like this is my moment to shine. And the king drops a bombshell and says, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For who? Say it with me. For who? Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gates. Do not neglect anything you have commanded. Like, what? What just happened? Can you imagine Haman sitting there going, you shifty thing. You should have told me from the start it wasn't me. I would never have suggested that. You set me up. Can you imagine I mean, far out, if I thought that I was gutted, like when my girlfriend rang me to tell me her husband got his dream job, like I should have been on cloud nine in comparison to this, right? This is serious bombshell. This is serious 180 degree. This is seriously (laughs) not the plan he had in mind. And you know what that tells me? It tells me this. That the fact that Haman had a signet ring Who cares? The fact that the king was in all authority and could make any decision he wants, who cares? The fact that Haman had set up these big poles that he was going to impale Mordecai on and they were all set, ready to go. The plan was like, it was like we're here and and it's just over here. It's going to unfold in five seconds. Who cares? The fact that everything looked like it was going wrong for Mordecai who cares? The fact that Haman had the upper hand, he had a very wise wife (laughs) and lots of really good buddies who gave him some really good advice. We don't really care about any of that because you see what matters most is not who has what and who's got the importance and who's got the upper hand and who's got the networks and who's got the good buddies and who's got, you know, the influence and who's got the suave talk and the manipulative dialogue. But what matters most is God's plan and that is what unfolds. And so let's pick up again, this time in verse 11, and it says this. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. To honor. Are you with me? Like, do you actually get what just happened? Like, he is honoring the guy he hates so badly, the guy he wants to kill, the guy he's organized to impale. Everything has flipped on its head. Everything. And he doesn't answer back. He doesn't, answer, he doesn't reply. He doesn't come up with some shifty, dodgy, you know, persuasive plan. He's just like, far out. <laughs> I'm a donner. I am completely done. And then we read on and it says, Afterwards Mordecai returned to the king's gates, but Haman, on the other hand, rushed home. With his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors, don't you love the way it calls them his advisors, like his buddies, they're his advisors. Sort of pays to have good advisors around you, doesn't it? And his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. (laughs) 
Now, he probably went home for a bit of sympathy, right? But instead, they were like, sorry, man. Someone's got to break it to you, but you're like, done. <laughs> like, you got no chance. He was probably thinking, that's not the answer I was looking for. But that's what they said to him. Again, we read, and it says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. So he's telling the king. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to the king, uh, who spoke up to help the king. And the king says, What? So this guy's telling the king, He's like, You know what? We don't even have to build our own. <laughs> Spare us a job. <laughs> we got less to do. Because the gallon. This big massive thing that was meant to be for the destruction of Mordecai is still sitting out there. Let's just like recycle it, right? Let's use that. And the king goes, impale him on it. What? Impale him on it? Impale him on it. So what did they do? They impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury subsided. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. What a sad, sad ending. What a sad ending. Do you know, we're told in the scripture we read earlier that the, um, the, the, the height of the pole that he was going to um, be put on was 50 cubits high. We're told that 75 feet high and seven and a half stories. Now, that is a man who is seriously, seriously angry. <laughs> that is a gross exaggeration of an impaling plan. To impale someone like I told you earlier is to pierce them through and through and he was going to rise him up seven and a half stories high because he was like, we are absolutely going to milk this. We are so going to milk it. We're going to destroy him. We're going to make him so humiliated. And then what happened? What happened? Because you see, like we said last week, Sometimes it doesn't seem like God's on the scene, but he's always on the scene even when he can't be seen. Do you know what I love about this story as well? Is that if Mordecai was of the stressful type, which the scripture doesn't give us any insight into that, but if he was of the stressful type, he would have probably been stressing out and worrying and having sleepless nights right up until this point, even though the solution was in progress sometime prior. It was like, you and I stressing out about something because we with our human eyes and our human insight and what we look at right here and right now looks like nothing's happening. But little do we know that sometimes stuff's happening back there behind the scene that we can't see. And we get ourselves into a flurry and we stress and we lose sleepless nights and we say, God, I'm not really sure if I trust you anymore. And all the while, the solution is going on behind the curtain, but we can't see it, you see. And so if we can't see it, our humanness convinces us that it mustn't be happening. And I love that about this story. I love that God was doing stuff over there. And Mordecai was oblivious. He didn't know anything. And I think that's absolutely insane. And what that teaches us is this. <clears throat> is that when it seems like there is nothing that you and I can do. There is nothing that God can't do. When there's nothing that you can do, there is nothing God can't do. Would you say that out with me? In your loudest, most convincing, 
I feel this in my bones voice. One, two, three, right? When there's nothing you can do, there's nothing God can't do. And one more time, like you believe it. When there's nothing you can do, there's nothing God can't do. The next time you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, the next time you find yourself in a situation where you do throw your arms up in the air, where you shake your head, where you're just like, oh, I feel like there's nothing to do here. I want you to remember this line. If you've got a mobile phone, pull it out, take a snap of this screen. Let it sink into your soul. Let God remind you of it every single day. Because the answer might be over there, but you might not see it with your eyes yet. When there's nothing you can do, there is nothing that God can't do. And the reason for that is because our God is the mosaic artist. Our God is the mosaic artist who has it all covered. Our God is the mosaic artist who uses all the pieces so beautifully. He puts them where they belong. And sometimes we can't quite see what the finished product is. Sometimes we look and we go, well, what's happening there? Like, you know, trying to make it out. And isn't Judy doing an amazing job, by the way? And our God's back there. He's creating this gorgeous piece. He's putting it all together. He's using broken bits and he's using whole bits. He's using colours that you don't even want up there because you're like, I don't even like red. And he's like, no, 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 trust me, red's good. (laughs) You see, the mosaic artist is above the signet ring. He's above the king's rule. He's above dodgy people. He's above lots of Instagram followers. He's above the lot. And his plan for your life and my life is beautiful and perfect and extravagant and it glimmers and it shines and it's got purpose and meaning if we would let him be the mosaic artist. But sometimes if you're anything like me, you know, we go, oh, hang on a minute. I told you I don't want that one. Like, why are you putting it in the corner? You know, I don't want blue in the corner and I don't want this and I don't want that. But if we would let the perfect artist be the artist. We would see incredible, incredible masterpieces in our life unfold. And you know, you saw the video of um, Christine and Bruce and their boy Corey. And in a moment, what I'm um, going to invite us to do is to bring up your tile, with whatever you've written on it. Your situation where you feel like there's nothing you can do. And I'm going to invite you as the band comes up in a little while to come and place your tiles on the stage because we want to believe God for breakthrough. But what we're saying is not whatever you bring up, we're going to pray over and we're going to wave some magic wand so that we can, you know, go, yep, yep, tick, 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 tick. We had 75 breakthroughs tonight. No. We're believing for breakthroughs, but the breakthroughs might look very different for some of us. You see, for some of you, you'll bring up your situation and you'll lay it here and you will see a breakthrough very specific and very relevant to what it is that you want. It'll be the answer to your prayer because you see, sometimes God changes our circumstances for us. That is true. That is absolutely true and sometimes he does. But you see, other times God changes us 
for the circumstances. And we're believing that whatever you pull up here tonight, we're declaring a breakthrough either specifically in that area and specifically the way you wanna see it unfold. But if that's not God's will, then we trust a sovereign mosaic artist. And we say, Father God, if you, it is not your will to change the circumstances for me, then change me for the circumstances. You watched Christine's video earlier. In her video, she says, if it wasn't for my 26-year experience, I would not be the person I am today. You see, God didn't heal Corey. God didn't do something miraculous with their disabled son, but God did something miraculous in them. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, you hear about trauma in marriage and hard places in marriage, and couples can't stay together and survive the trauma. So obviously, just if we look at it from one single perspective, God must have done something huge on this couple to actually stay together for 26 years and put up with the day-to-day grind of managing a disabled child. You see, sometimes God doesn't change our circumstances, but he changes us. And when he changes us, we're not begrudging about that. Don't think that that's like, you know, oh, yeah, second round offer. (laughs) No, that's still first round offer. That's still perfect for you. And when you're in that place, you will love it. Because you know what? Like I said this morning, Christine was here and it was beautiful for her to hear it, but she's not, but I'll still honor her in saying, she's one of the biggest hearted people that I know. She's also one of the most generous people that I know. Every week she turns up with a Santa bag and she's giving out gifts. She's, you know, giving out, you know, verses to this person and diaries for this person and gratitude journals to this person. And I think, far out, like, you know, you're spending all the money you have because you're like just giving it away each week, every single week without fail. I get a text message from her with a verse, a picture, something encouraging for me. And I think, wow. Wow, we looked at Haman, who was so egocentric and the whole world revolved around him. And then I look at this woman, who at some point would have been a victim. And yet, her whole life has been transformed. And she lives with purpose, and she extends purpose. And so as the band comes up now, we want to invite you. We want to invite you to come before God and to renew your faith and let it stir up and rise up within you. We want you to actually put on your brave and put on your surrender and to come up to the front as the music plays and to place your tile on the stage as a declaration before God that you surrender that very thing and that you acknowledge that it might seem like there's nothing that you can do but that you declare with your feet and with your positioning of your tile up here, that you believe even if you just have the faith of a tiny, tiny microscopic mustard seed, that there's nothing your God can't do. Would you do that? We're totally cool with disruptions. We're totally cool with you leaning over anyone in your aisle to grab a texter and write it down because we want to see breakthrough in your life. We want to see breakthrough in this church. But to see it, we've got to know what it is we're looking for. We've got to know what it is we want to see. And if you need prayer, when you put your tile down, can you not run away back to your seat? Can you actually just stay here? Because we've got a team of people who would love to pray for you. God loves you. 
the mosaic artist has an incredible masterpiece of your life that he's creating. And his question is, do you trust me? Do you trust what I'm doing behind the scenes?